ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, how good it is to be in the house that belongs to you. How good it is to look at your inspired, inerrant word. And Father, later on today, how good it will be to interact with our graduates. Father, I pray that they, as well as all of us, would not turn to the right or the left. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the road that leads to life. Father, help our graduates not only to know your Son as Savior, but to live each and every day. May we each live each and every day under the Lordship of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be sold out, committed in love, We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As I thought about the message that I want to share with our graduates and with all of you, I thought, well, it might be fun to go online and find some yearbook quotes. Now, I didn't find yearbook quotes of our graduates. I kind of went outside central Wisconsin. But I have a few quotes that I would like to share with you. The first one is this, education is important, but big biceps are important to her. <laughs> a future, I think he would be a future English major. Stephanie, I want to thank Google, Wikipedia, and whoever invented copy and paste, thank you. I think we have a higher view of education, and then after the first two, I agree with the third guy. The third guy, honestly, I didn't expect most of you to make it this far. <laughs> that would be true about our first two. It's not true about our graduates. The next one. Just give me my diploma and pronounce my name correctly. Every African kid ever. <laughs> now, if you have ever read names or had one, you understand. Guys call me Amar, but girls call me me Amor. <laughs> if you don't know what that means, it might be time for a foreign language. And this, young ladies, is exactly who your parents warned you against. <laughs> Stay away from him. The next one. I love this. I hear everything. <laughs> what a great sense of humor, right? The next one is also a great sense of humor. I got a haircut and no one noticed. Not a political or religious statement. I think she has a great sense of humor. So does Allison in the next one. I'm only three and a half minutes younger. Best three and a half minutes of my life. Allison, bless your heart. The next one. This guy is not a Romans 12 guy. Cheaters never win, but I just graduated. That is not our graduates. With this introduction, I want to read from Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, sisters, Christ followers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. I think it's a great text for all of us. And from this text, we'll notice four points, two verses, four points. The prerequisite for a God-honoring life is that we offer our bodies to the Lord. That's the prerequisite. The motivation is because of all God has done for us. It's the mercies that you and I receive. The exhortation is that you and I refuse to conform to this world. Remember what Peter said. We are strangers and aliens. This is not our home. We are passing through. Our home is in heaven. We live with an eye towards heaven. And the result will be transformation in our lives. That's what God wants in my life. It's what he wants in yours. As you and I begin in verse 1, it says, Therefore, and although I've never said this in a sermon before, we've all heard lots of preachers say that when you see the word therefore, ask why it is there or what it's there for. It actually is a good statement. Why is the therefore in the text? It actually refers to what precedes it, in this case, 11 chapters. Now we live in a day and age in which people say, just be practical. Just give me practical messages, practical sermons. That's all I want, and that's a shame. Because that's not what the Bible demands. If you think about the Apostle Paul and how he wrote, he always gives us orthodoxy, right thinking, before he gives us orthopraxy, right living. So think about Ephesians. Ephesians has three chapters on doctrine, then followed by three chapters on application. Colossians, four chapters, right? Two chapters of doctrine, followed by two chapters of application. Romans, 16 chapters, 11 chapters of doctrine, followed by five chapters of application. In other words, we can't get to orthopraxy, right living, until we have orthodoxy, right thinking. Creed leads to conduct. Doctrine leads to a developed life. If you don't know what to think about sin and salvation and God, you and I will not be able to respond and live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. And so when Paul says, therefore, he's assuming that you and I have a mastery of what has proceeded in the 11 chapters. So get comfortable. You're going to be here a long time. No, we can't do that today. But I want to summarize chapters 1 to 11 in Romans 8. In Romans 8, 28 to 31, I think we have a pretty good summary. And we know, we're not guessing, we're not hoping, we're not wishing... And we know 
that for those who love God, that is who have a relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus, all things work together for good. So first condition, you got to love God. The result is all things work together for good. And then the second condition is this. You have to be called according to his purpose. In other words, if you and I love God and we're living for God, God will work all these other things out for his glory and for his kingdom purposes. That's his promise to us. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal. The goal is not head knowledge. The goal is to be conformed to the living God. It's to be like Christ. In order that he might be of the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. That is, he declared righteous through faith in his son. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These verses refer to the mercies of God. What it's saying is this. You and I cannot earn our way to a holy God. Is NASA impressed with your paper airplane? Probably not. And neither is a holy God impressed with our good works. Our good works are nothing in the presence of a holy God. Because you and I are sinners. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God, and what we deserve for our sin is to be separated eternally from God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the mercies that Paul refers to. We come to the end of ourselves. We rightly recognize that we are sinners, that our sin will keep us from a holy God, and that God in the personhood of Jesus, fully God, don't flesh the incarnation, fully God, fully man, never sinned, and then went to the cross and died as a payment of sin. He died for us. He who knew no sin, you remember the first few words though? For our sake. He who knew no sin became sin for us that through him we might become the righteousness of God. He died in our place that by faith we believe in him We confess that we are sinners in the power of his spirit. We begin to turn from sin. We call that repentance. And the Lord saves us, not because of what we've done, but because of what he did for us. This is the mercy of God. These are the mercies of God. And Paul says, in light of that, what is reasonable is that you and I no longer conform to this world but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's the only reasonable response. It's the only worshipful response. In light of salvation that we did not earn, that we do not deserve, that comes through grace, the only reasonable thing is that we stop conforming to this world because we are strangers and aliens. We stop giving in to our pet sins. We stop living in such a way that is selfish and self-centered. And we start living for Christ. That's reasonable. That's worshipful. That's acceptable and pleasing to God. This little poem put it this way. It's a silly little poem. I dreamed death came the other night and heaven's gate swung open wide. With kindly grace an angel came and ushered me inside. And there to my astonishment stood folks I'd known on earth. 
Some I judged and called unfit, and others of little worth. Indignant words rose to my lips, but never were set free. For every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. <laughs> and that ought to be true for all of us. If we think that we get to heaven by works, nobody will expect any of us. We're rascals all in need of utter grace. And when we get to heaven, we're going to know some people who are saved that we would have no idea we're going to be there, but because of grace, because of faith in Jesus, because they confessed and turned and believed in Christ, they will be in heaven. And our earthly response to that is what? We stop conforming to this world and we are transformed. We present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is holy and pleasable to God. Now Romans is written to first century Rome, one of the seedier societies we know a lot about in history. There's no sin under the sun that was not very prevalent in first century Rome. No temptation was there that somebody couldn't follow. And yet, Paul says, we don't conform. We don't follow the crowd. We don't do what everyone else is doing. We are not to conform. We are to be transformed. And what I want to say to graduates, I also want to say to all of us, it requires disciplines in our life. And I'm going to mention five. I think these five are standard. If you don't have all five, you're not going to make, I'm not going to make much progress in my life spiritually. The first is we have to be word-centered. We have to really know the word, read the word, study the word. I love the way Moses put it in Deuteronomy 32, 47. He said this, For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is your very life. Yesterday I did a wedding out in Merrill. And uh, after the wedding and before the meal, I was talking to uh, somebody I've gotten to know out in Merrill pretty well. And uh, we, we've talked probably 30 or 40 minutes, and uh, his son was there. And in the course of that, I discovered I knew his father. I didn't know. I never put the two together. Last name is the same, you know. Some people would have been... Really sharp on that and never put the two together. They live in different areas, but his father and mother went to Israel with me about 10 or 15 years ago. And I said to him, your dad, and looked at the young guy, your grandfather knows the Bible better than any layperson I have ever met. Ever. He asked questions in Israel. I decided I was no longer going to stand next to him because I didn't know the answer to all his questions. <laughs> and he told me that his dad reads through the Bible three times every year and has been doing it for years. This is your life. Graduates, Highlanders, this is your life. 
But it's not just the Bible, it's also prayer, communing with God. I love what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 26, 41. He made this statement, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we need regularly to commune with the Lord. And we need to worship him and exalt him. And fall upon his mercies and his grace and confess and, and ask. We need prayer. We need the word. We need prayer. And we need to be in a Bible-centered church and Bible studies. Hebrews 10, 25 says, Do not forsake the assembly of the saints as some are in the habit of doing, but even all the more so as you see the day approaching. In other words, the closer you and I get to the return of Christ, the more we need to be in church, the more we need to be in the Word, in prayer, in fellowship with one another. It's what we need. It's what we need. Fourth, we need to be alert. There's a spiritual battle raging all around us. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of devil and the armor then is listed in Ephesians 6. The armor is what we often pray. I prayed it this morning at whatever time I was praying. And, and you pray and you say, I need the shoes shod with the gospel of peace. It's not because I think I lose my salvation. I just want to remember the mercies of God that he saved me. And there's no reason that I deserve to be saved, but he saved me. We need the belt of truth. We need to be truth tellers and truth purveyors and listen to truth. And we need the breastplate of righteousness. Who doesn't need that in this land? We live in an unrighteous land, an unrighteous world. We need the righteousness of God to cover us. And we need the shield of faith to put out the flaming darts of the evil one. Hebrews 11 Verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And so one of the prayers I pray almost every day is, Lord, grow my faith. Because if I don't have faith, not only saving faith, but living faith, active faith. If I don't have faith, I am not pleasing to God. That's what he says. And then we need the sword of the Spirit. What's that? That's the word of God. That was the first one. And then we need the helmet of salvation. That's our assurance. That's really our perseverance. We persevere in our faith. And then how does he tie it all together? Prayer. So we need the word. We need prayer. We need the church. We need to know that we're in a spiritual battle. That we need the armor. And then we need some wise friends in our lives. 1 Corinthians 15.30 Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so we need, along with unbelieving friends, and we all ought to have them, we need both believing and unbelieving friends. How else are we going to be salt and light? But we also need, in addition to unbelieving friends, we need believing friends. And I would say that the ones that I want to go to for advice are older than me in the faith and probably older than me here on earth. That's who I want to go to for advice, because otherwise I'll be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. In the word, in prayer, in church, 
knowing we're in a spiritual battle, and having wise counselors in our lives to give us wisdom. I think all are key if we want to present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is holy and pleasing to God. This is countercultural. Our culture says if it feels good, do it. Jesus says don't conform, be transformed. He says present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That word present, peristasi, is really odd in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament word. Although the New Testament is written in Greek and the Old Testament is written predominantly in Hebrew, and peristasi is a Greek word, it's a translation of a Hebrew word, and by and large this word is only in the Old Testament. In fact, it's only in the Levitical system. You remember before the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, paid the ultimate sacrifice and died for our sin and rose again, that if we would believe in him and receive him, we would be given eternal life. Before that, you would take an animal, a dead animal, and put it on the altar. You would present peristasi, the animal on the altar, as a temporary atonement or payment for sin, looking forward to the ultimate redeemer, Jesus, that was going to come. This is an Old Testament word. And yet it's in the New Testament, and it's, it's not what we would expect. In the Old Testament, you put the dead animal on the altar. In the New Testament, you put the live human on the altar, and that's you and me. And when you put a dead animal on an altar, guess what? It stays there. You put a live you and me on the altar, and guess what? It's supposed to stay there, but it gets off and backs up and looks around and starts conforming. And Jesus says, no, present your body as a living sacrifice. Get on the altar, stay on the altar, live on the altar. Continue to present your body as a living sacrifice. For our younger people, what would that look like? Forget younger people. For us older people, what does it look like? It looks like agreeing with the Lord and morality. That intimacy is only in a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship. It means agreeing with God that we are not to be gossipers or slanders. We are to guard our tongue. It means agreeing with the Lord that we have the privilege and joy of sharing salvation by faith in Christ with others. It means that we are not to be idolaters that value our job or wealth, but we are to value the Lord. It means that we are to live for God. It means that we put those disciplines, being in the Word, being in prayer, being in church, understanding we have a spiritual battle and having wise advisors in our lives, we make that front and center. That's part of what it means to be on the altar, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is holy and pleasing to God, which is a spiritual worship. As a child, my parents gave me a Bible almost every year. I don't know why. And almost every year they would write something. I think that's why. If you read what my parents wrote, I won't let you read it. Because every year they highlighted 
the things I needed to work on. I got to throw those things away. Because it's embarrassing when you read your second grade Bible and you say, oh man, still got to work on that. <laughs> but one year they gave me the King James and I learned this verse in the King James. And it says that it is your reasonable worship. That's exactly right. It's the Greek word logikon. It's the word logical. Because of the mercies of God, because of what God has done for us, it is illogical to conform to the world. It is totally logical to be transformed by Christ. And so he gives us that word transformation. It's the word metamorphosthai, from which we derive the word metamorphosis. From one thing to something different. From a caterpillar to a butterfly. It means to be transformed. The word is only found four times in the Bible. Twice it refers to Jesus, Matthew 19, Mark 9. Excuse me, Matthew 17, Mark 9. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And suddenly the Lord allows these three to see some of the glory of Jesus. And he begins to shine. And that's two of the four times it's used. And that's the word used here. It says wherever you are, at school, at work, in the neighborhood, you begin to shine. You begin to be transformed. That's logical in light of the mercies of God that you and I become glow sticks, if you will, for the Lord. That we stop rationalizing sin and we start Embracing what is logical, that we don't conform, but we are transformed. Now, metamorphosi is a present passive imperative. I'm going to be talking to graduates so they can handle this stuff. Present passive imperative. Present, we say, is iterative. It's repetitive. It's not one time and you're over we got to get on the altar, and then shamefully we get, get back on that altar, keep getting on the altar, keep being transformed. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He makes this statement. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed, what? Day by day. That's iterative. That's present. That's repetitive. We don't arrive until we get home to glory. None of us arrive. We all have the next step in our relationship with the Lord. We have a little more connection, a little more going, a little more growing. We have one more step to do in our relationship with the Lord, and then one more step after that, and one more step after that. That's why the logo in the middle of the church is a cross with a number of lines. Those are the steps we take towards the cross. And as we take a step, we have another step, we have another step, we have another step. That's being renewed day by day. That's metamorphosi, the present. We don't arrive. We keep becoming more and more like Christ. The passive means that we cannot do it on our own. We need to daily come to the Lord and say, Lord, empower me to take the next step in my relationship with you. 
empower me to stop making excuses for that sin. To stop saying, well, others do it, or it's not that bad, or just ignore it. We stop making excuses, and we start living more and more for the Lord. The Lord doesn't need my excuses. He doesn't want my excuses. He doesn't listen to my excuses. I'm wasting my breath. He wants transformation, and he wants to empower me to do it. I need to ask him, Lord, help me to attack that pet sin or those pet sins in my life. Present passive imperative. It's a command. It's not an option for a Christ follower. We are not to conform any longer to this world. We are to be transformed by the renewing of my mind because this is logical. Logicon, this is reasonable in light of the mercies that God has extended to you and to me. Well, I opened the sermon with uh, some quotes from yearbooks. I went to my co-workers and I said, hey, how about giving me a couple of your grad pictures? And, and my co-workers are amazing. Almost every one of them gave me a high school grad picture. I couldn't use them all. So I picked a few and I put them out on a table and asked my co-workers to put captions on them. So if they're insulting, it's not me. I'm above that. But... Uh, here we have uh, Jeff Weiss, business up front, rocker in the back. Yep. How about the next one? Trudy Morisi. The bigger the hair, the closer was must be to God. I don't know, but I'll tell you, she's been used by God in a lot of our team's lives. Behind the scenes, we have Kathy. Kathy does all the PowerPoint. It's called Feather Hair. It's on fleck. I don't even know what that means. But I'm, I'm told that if I were really hip, I would know that phrase. So I'm using it. Does he look any different? <laughs> 60 years and looks the same. It's clean living. The next one. He tells us his name is Good Ballot. I think it's Good Beret. And I think that is a sixth grade picture. <laughs> or yesterday. I, I don't know one or the other. Look at those glasses. They are hipster glasses like four decades ago. Impressive. And then the man, then the legend, Jarrod Stichter. What can I say? I'm speechless. And since I picked on them, I thought, well, I ought to give you my high school picture heading back, uh, yep, to Hogwarts. So taken a few weeks ago in London. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for our graduates. I thank you that they have made this milestone in their life. And some are not high school graduates. We have some college, university graduates. And we're thankful for what you've done in their life, and we look forward to the next step that they will take in their relationship with you. And Father, help us all to take the next step. That in light of your mercies, that we no longer conform, but we are transformed. I think of Pastor Jared in the picture we just put up. A man who met his father 
two times, three times ever. And didn't have the privilege of growing up in the church, but somehow found his way into an evangelical free church and was transformed. And went from someone who had no light to sharing light with others. And may that account be our account. And may we be transformed like that. And even more. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.